It's a delight for Vani and I to be here, and um, we're having a little trouble with the PowerPoint, so we're hoping that it will work because I want to show you a little bit of uh, uh, stuff concerning our ministry over in India. And uh, but we'll get to that in just a minute, but first, um, thank you for allowing us to come, and uh, it's always great to see uh, a lot of friends that we've known for a lot of years. My dad pastored this church many, many years ago. Um, in fact, uh, he passed away in 1979, so it's been that long. Uh, my mom just recently passed away. Some of you are aware of that. She um, had dementia, um, pretty severe dementia for a number of years, and so she died on Good Friday, and it was a great Friday for her because she went to be with Jesus and closed her eyes here and opened her eyes up in heaven. So uh, we're thankful that she is with the Lord. And uh, let me give you a, an update. One of our ministries under Joy in Jesus Ministry and 800 Follow Me is called the Nathaniel Project. And this is a, a two-month church evangelism program, which... Um, a bunch of churches are starting to do. Uh, this year we've had churches in Louisiana, Kentucky, Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania um, all do the program. We've got three churches right now that are in the middle of it. And uh, very simply stated, we believe that everybody has a Nathaniel. comes from John chapter 1. Philip meets Jesus. He's so impressed, who wouldn't be, that he had to go to his friend and bring his friend to Jesus, and his friend's name was Nathaniel. And so we believe that every Christian has a Nathaniel. Every Christian has someone that they need to bring to Christ. And so during the two months, that's what we work on. And uh, the church works on that, praying for their Nathaniels. We could take a little survey right now, and I bet it would be equal to what most say, and that is most churches, uh, people in churches are not praying for anybody that they will accept Christ. And, uh, and so now we get them praying for their Nathaniel in the first week, and then, um, and then they learn how to share the faith with them. And we think it's a pretty good program, something we've spent about three and a half, four years working on, and uh, it's ready to go. Uh, Fifteen test churches did it, and, uh, and now we're in a bunch of other churches that are using it. So perhaps maybe the Lord will direct your church to use it as well. Other part of our ministry is over in India uh, as we mentor and teach pastors. And I was over for a month in January, uh, kind of difficult to, uh, to sum up, a month-long trip. And uh, nobody wants to see anybody else's travel log. Uh, but I take so many pictures that I thought I'd share a little bit of you, uh, with you uh, some of the highlights. Uh, this is in a parking garage at the airport. I played Santa Claus. Nobody came and sat on my lap. Uh, this is a church in Delhi. It's a house church. Sometimes they have upwards of 40 people there. Pastors in one of the conferences that we did. Those are the children of the orphanage that we visit every year. And look at this guy aside of me. He is taller than I am. Hard to believe. But that's also at the orphanage. And that's the director of the orphanage with his family. Um, and then we got to preach at a church called the Fusion Church. You know when you call to, you have a problem with your appliance or your computer, and you end up talking to somebody in India? These are the people you talk to. Uh, they're really a great group of people. And uh, they have two services in English. Uh, both of them are. And uh, we were delighted to be able to spend time with the pastor who was on my right. And my nephew went over with me this year and did a great job as well. He, he too, is a pastor. Um, we also, uh, well, these are the speakers that were at one of the conference uh, with us together, and um, a couple action shots of me teaching. You know, there's not really much you can see from that, but uh, this is a Hyderabad conference. Uh, there I am. And uh, this conference was up in Nepal, once again, teaching to the folks. 
And then the results of uh, my teaching, uh, we got some action shots of that. Um, yeah, uh, that would be, that pretty much sums it up. Um, the teaching ministry that I have over there in India, or this, uh, okay. It was <laughs> I even fell asleep once, not when I was teaching, but a um, couple bizarre shots for you. Uh, over in India, they, they claim to be the largest English-speaking country in the world. That's because they're the second largest country in the world, and a lot of people do speak English over there. They don't understand it very well, and so they get mixed up with some of their words, and uh, this is an actually, it's an ice cream place. Oh, so stoned. Um, and this must have been a bar, I think. Let's get high. Uh, this particular place here, you know, they call these adult beverages uh, spirits. And so this, uh, this place, this bar decided to, to call their bar spiritual. And so I went in there to see if I could get spiritual, but no, I didn't go in there at all. And uh, getting your hair cut at this place, I'm not sure that you would uh, want to do that. Um, or take your friend to work day. Uh, I don't know why they've got the goat on the motorcycle, but indeed they do. And then I finally got to see the Taj Mahal. I bought a hat, the Taj hat. Uh, no, that's not right. There it is. Okay. And this next picture I actually took myself. I'm not a very good photographer, but that's pretty impressive when you, when you look at that picture. I think it is. Now, highlights, real quick. Um, and uh, first of all was teaching the Nathaniel Project and uh, having the books uh, for the guys to be able to use. I hope you'll pray with us, as you have been, uh, that many of these guys will be able to use the Nathaniel Project and uh, in their church. Uh, this guy here um, is, uh, is the kind of my co-author uh, because he not only translated the book, but he also Indianized it. And uh, that was taking my illustrations and making it more Indian. He is not taller than I am. He's standing on the platform. That's why he's laughing. Uh, but in my mind, he is taller than I am for what he was able to do for us. Um, I, I should tell you this. I did learn from one of the, the ministry directors. We had about 100 at this conference. And I asked him, I said, is it working? Are they doing it over there? And he sent an email back, and he had the pastor's name and a number aside of it, pastor number, pastor number, and it added up to 80 names. And these were 80 Nathaniels that had come to Christ. You know, they have Nathaniels over in India. Their names are a lot longer, but uh, they have them there as well. And uh, so the program is working in, uh, in India. Um, we have it translated in one language. We're translating it now into Hindi, uh, which is uh, more of a national language form. The second opportunity was going into a slum, to dedicate a church, and uh, it, it indeed is a slum as the road got smaller and smaller and, um, uh, and poorer and poorer. The people do live in, in buildings, uh, not in tents. I've seen a lot of tent cities over there as well. But this was a church in the middle of all this. That's the ministry director, Pastor Rao. We had raised up enough money to build two churches, and uh, this was one of them. And we thrilled to listen to the, the daughter of the pastor who shared about her grandmother having a vision that someday they would have a church in this area. And indeed they do. Um, the church is not completed yet or wasn't in January. My guess is it probably is now. We're getting close to it. But it was neat to be able to be there and to, uh, to fellowship with this, uh, this particular church and we, as we dedicated it to, to our son as well as uh, another gal. The second uh, thing uh, that was related to the church was this one here, which got stopped 
because not because they ran out of money. We gave them plenty of money, but they didn't have all the uh, the documents in order for uh, for the state, I guess, and uh, and so they were um, they were told to stop until they completed that. Now, that is not uh, un untypical. Um, the the government is a Hindu government. You need to realize that, and it's very Hindu right now. And they will do anything they can to to stop uh, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, that was to be expected, I guess. But they, it's a double whammy for them. This church in this village is the daughter church of this church that I spoke at a year ago. And uh, their pastor, um, who was their pastor, on the week that we were there in India ministering, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. And his son is the one that's starting this new church. And so you can see a double whammy against this church. And so I'd appreciate you praying for, for them. I'd love to be able to, when I go back, to be able to see the church done and uh, to get a, a lot of information and positive information, we hope, of what God is doing. I do plan to go back in October. I've invited to do another conference over there. And we're going to do three more, so we'll do four in the month of October. So thank you for your prayers. As your missionaries, uh, we appreciate the fact that you are praying for us and that you are supporting us, and uh, greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. So we'll be headed back in October. In the meantime, we're involved running the 800 Follow Me and Join Jesus ministry. So that's our update for you. Thank you for being willing to, uh, to listen to that and to look at that. Hopefully I'll be able to come back after the October visit and give you a, a real positive update for that as well. The train left a Stanford, Florida depot at around 8 p.m. heading north, 810 miles, a 16-and-a-half-hour trip to Lorton, Virginia, just south of Washington, D.C. This is Amtrak's auto train. Some of you probably have taken it. And on this particular day, it was taking the snowbirds back to the north uh, from Florida. And what better way to go uh, to be able to, to sit and read and, and eating and dining cars and walking around and sleeping uh, as opposed to uh, being stuck on I-95 and restroom stops that are closed and then paying for motels. I don't know that anybody would want to stay at that motel, but you get the point. Frank was one of the passengers on board, and he was headed back to home after vacation in Florida. Now, he was a retired owner of a landscaping business up in New York. We're not talking about mowing the lawns landscaping business. We're talking about the type where uh, you design landscaping for either houses or for um, uh, for developments. And he had won many awards in, in what he was able to do. But before going on vacation, he had a conversation with one of his employees. This employee was from the Bayou State, from Louisiana, from his uncles. Um, he had learned how to clear a cotton field and how to lay brick and stone, and so he was a mason. 1,400 miles and a lifetime later, he's working now up in New York for Frank at the landscaping business. Well, he's not really working for Frank anymore because Frank's retired. His son Tommy is running the business. But Frank had noticed something different about this employee, something spiritual about this guy. He had some questions. And so on this day, before going on vacation, he stopped this employee from walking home and was asking him about his spirituality. This employee had the chance to share the good news of Jesus Christ with Frank, and Frank did not pray or make a profession of faith on that day, but the employee believes that he did, uh, that he did become a follower of Jesus. 
Oh, one other thing that Frank said to this employee was that he was afraid of flying. He had a fear of flying. And so on this very day that he's taking a train trip, um, he put his wife on the airplane, and she flew home while he went on the train. An hour into the train ride, because of some track negligence and into a turn near Crescent City, Florida, the train went off the tracks. Out of 445 souls on the train, 142 were injured, 20 seriously enough to be medevaced to hospitals, four people were killed, Frank was one of them. Do you think that God puts people in your life to witness to them right before they're about to die? That's the question that his former employee Steve asked me. I'm sure I gave him the deer in the headlights look because I wasn't expecting a question like that. And, but yet, my firm belief is that God has placed individuals in our life, divine appointments for us to be able to share Christ with. And, and so my answer was yes. No sooner had I gotten this out of my mouth that he, he declared, this has happened to me seven times. Seven times. Wow. Steve's just a regular guy. Got a GED because he never graduated from high school. He's a retired construction worker, common boy from Louisiana. Yet God chooses to use him because he makes himself available to God every day. And then he looks for opportunities, perhaps something small, something simple that gives him an open door to start sharing. As followers of Jesus Christ, we've been commissioned to share our faith with our Nathaniels. A Nathaniel is a friend, a relative, a co-worker, a neighbor, an associate, a family member who doesn't know Christ. To this end this morning, I want to share with you just one verse, actually um, half a verse and half of the next. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. After exhorting wives and, and husbands in their relationship, verses 1 through 7, he gives a finally. Whenever you see the word finally in the New Testament epistles, you know that the author is now going to sum up everything, or, or he's going to throw in a bunch of stuff right here at the end, under, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, of course. Oftentimes there's not a theme, although it does look like there is one in the, the verses we're going to read. So I'm going to start reading at verse 8 and down to verse 18. Finally... All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
Verses 15 into 16, we, we kind of see a, um, actually starting at verse 13, we kind of see a theme at that point, suffering for righteousness sake, and we should have no fear of those who are going to persecute us. We should not be troubled about this. Better to suffer for what is good, uh, if it is in God's will, than doing evil. Besides verse 18, Christ suffered. Verses 15 and 16, we have what we want to examine today. If in the process of this suffering, or for that matter, any time, we should honor Christ as holy by always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is one of the few times in the epistles that we have a reference to sharing our faith with others. Now, you would think there would be many. I, I thought there should be. If I were writing the Bible, every other chapter would have something in there about sharing your faith. This bothered me that there wasn't, and so I, I approached an evangelist friend of mine, uh, Wendell Calder, about this issue, and uh, Wendell's on a short list of evangelists in the Northeast. I recommend him highly. Um, my question was this. If evangelism is the lifeblood of the church, if it is what we are supposed to be doing as followers of Jesus, why are there not more verses in the New Testament commanding us to do it? You've got Jesus giving what appears to be his last two commands or statements when he said, you are to make disciples in Matthew 28, 19 and following. And then in Acts 1, 8, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. But neither Paul, nor Peter, nor John, nor James make this their emphasis in their gospels, in their letters, in their writings. Wendell answered by observing that he had never thought of the question before, which made me think it was a silly question. But he did note that there are a lot of examples from which we should follow. True enough. But in this verse, we have it. We have a verse on evangelism, and I want to simply break it down for you. Break it down together as we look at the words and phrases. So he starts out with the word always. I'm pretty sure we know what that means. That means just some of the times. That means on a Sunday, maybe when you feel really spirit-filled and led. That means like, maybe, just maybe, this would be the... No, that means always, right? Doesn't that mean always to you? I, I know I'm from Pennsylvania and you're in New Jersey, but I'm kind of thinking in New Jersey it means always as well. I don't believe it's hyperbole. I often say, I always get the red lights. Now, it is true. Uh, the cars, uh, the red lights seem to see me, and, uh, and they, they turn red. In fact, there's a stretch on Route 309 going through the Quakertown area in which I always get the red lights. Now, that's not true. That's hyperbole. But it sure seems like it. And today was a good example of it, which made me a couple minutes late. Um, always. He says always here. And, and our goal with the Nathaniel Project is to change the culture of the church. That's the ultimate goal. Individualistic, the goal is to see Nathaniels come to know Christ as Christians start witnessing to them. But ultimately, we want to help change the culture of the church so that the church is involved with evangelism. It needs to be ongoing, always. Then he says, being prepared. The Boy Scouts, when they were just the Boy Scouts, before they knelt at the altar of liberalism and the feminization of our society, back when they were turning boys into men, had as a motto, be prepared. They were to be prepared in body, mind, and soul. Well, when it comes to the Christian life, we're to be prepared as well. Whatever the admonition is for which we always need to be doing it, it is something that we need to be ready to do. We should not wait until the situation arises and hope 
that God will bail us out. Don't confuse with what Peter is saying here with what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 14, which I'll read to you. He said, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. As I was studying for the evangelism book that I wrote, um, I saw somebody who used this and said, don't worry about studying. Don't worry about memorizing anything. God will give you the words. Well, if you put this into context, that's not what he's saying. He's saying if you're dragged in front of a religious tribunal or you're dragged into a court of law to defend your faith, don't worry about what to say. You can't plan for it anyway. I'll give you the words. This is not what Peter is speaking about in this passage. He's talking about everyday experiences. Oh, I believe that when you start witnessing, he will give you the words, but it often is based upon what you've studied. The number one reason people do not witness is fear. Fear is fed in part because we don't know what to say. Yes, there are other reasons, many other ones, but this is a a critical one. You don't know what to say, you're not going to say it. Last year, many celebrated the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing, nailing a note on the door of a church transforming Christendom. Luther's concern in regard to this verse is that the people did not have the Bible to read. Therefore, they were not able to be prepared. And it was a, a righteous concern because they did not have the Bible in his day. In his day, the only Bibles that they had were, one, written in Latin, and two, were in the churches. In fact, as a monk, he was given a Bible for just a couple years. And then he had to turn it back in. And he had to use the other helps and the other books, but he didn't have the Bible himself. And so he was concerned about this. And so when you read his commentary, that's what his commentary says concerning this verse. That's why he was concerned, and rightfully so. That's why he then started translating the Latin into German for the German people. 500 years later, we all have Bibles, uh, many of them in our own. Is there anyone here who does not have a Bible? Because I'll give you mine if you don't have a Bible. We all have Bibles. Fact of the matter is, I read a a statistic not too long ago that in Christian homes, they normally have seven Bibles within the home. That's not the concern. The concern is the fact that we're not studying the Bible so that we can present it when the Lord has us to present it to someone. The evil one has convinced us that it's too complicated, too challenging, that we cannot do the simple thing like defend our faith. Satan is a crafty one. And so before, they didn't have Bibles. Now we do. We still can't witness because we don't know what the Bible says. Well, I've gotten ahead of myself about what are we to prepare, and he says to make a defense. Some of you football fans are thinking of the, uh, the cheer defense, defense. Well, this would be very wrong. That would be very wrong. That would be better. Uh, but that's not what he's saying, all right? That's not the defense that he's talking about here. The defense here is about your faith. Someone has noticed that you are a person of faith, and therefore they're challenging it or they're questioning it. Uh, they ask, why are you the way you are? The word defense is the, the Greek word from which we get our word apology. I'm not talking about apologizing. We have too much of that in Christendom, not willing to defend our faith. Um, They apologize for what they believe. Uh, They don't want to offend anyone. No, no, we're not talking about that. The particular term in the original was something that would have been used in a court of law. 
It literally means to talk off from. To talk off from. And it was used by an attorney who talked his client off from a charge brought against him. I did a uh, two-year stint on a grand jury. uh, Two years. Anyone here ever been on a grand jury? Any fellow? No, not many people have. Well, it met once a week, um, every week for two weeks, other than a couple times off and a little bit of vacation time. And, and um, it, it was, there was it, double this uh, when we first started. And they had to whittle it down to about 30-some. And, um, and so people had to have an excuse. And most of them worked in, in industries in which they couldn't take off or, you know, whatever. And so they got rid of them quickly. And then, then everybody that was left had to stand to give their excuse. And the only excuse I had is that I take a nap in the afternoon. Um, I didn't think the judge would go for that, and so I got stuck in this grand jury, and I'm glad I did. I got to meet people that I would have never met before, uh, got to pray for some people, uh, share the gospel with the whole group at one point, and, and hopefully make uh, moral decisions. But I did notice this. When somebody came into the grand jury, they were allowed to have an attorney with them, counsel with them. But that counsel couldn't say anything. And we had one guy that came in there, and he started saying, make a defense, and, and the, uh, the district attorney said, no, no, you can't say anything. They can't say anything. It's a grand jury, different rules. So the counselor will sit behind them. And when this person says something stupid, the counselor will lean up to them and say, shut up, or plead the fifth. Uh, or can I talk to my client? And then he would say the same thing. Because he wanted to defend him, but he can't in a grand jury. Now, if you are in a court of law, you want this guy, you want the attorney to talk you off from something. So if, if Doug Long Sr. is finally dragged into court, he wants somebody to talk him off from it. But the term isn't just listed, listed, uh, limited to the courtroom. It's talking about talking off of a charge Paul, who uses it in a legal sense, did so in a non-legal one in Philippians 1.15 when he said uh, he denoted his ability to answer those who questioned him. That's the same thing. And so it should be with us as Christians. Someone wrote, every disciple should be able to articulate the rationale for his or her belief. There should be no hesitation, no delay, no stutter. If somebody were to ask you why you live where you live, in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, or the surrounding communities, I can't imagine anybody here actually lives in Easton. Why would they do that? Uh, I graduated from Peaberg High School, so I can say that. But if someone were to ask you why you live where you live, my guess is you could probably tell us, well, this is where I grew up, or this is where my family is from, or, or that you, could give, uh, you would be able to tell why you live where you live. If someone were to ask you why you went to the school you went to, maybe you went to college, maybe you went to a trade school, and, uh, and they were to ask you, well, now, why did you go to that school? My guess is you would have a pretty good explanation as to why you went to that school. You would know the reasons for why you went there. If someone were to ask you, why did you marry the person you married? You better have a reason to tell them, especially if they are standing right aside of you. Right, and I'm sure you could. We fell in love. We met each other. We fell in love. We were at the bowling alley. There she was. You know, I, you know, I don't know what the circumstances is. But my guess is you would be able to tell exactly why you fell in love with that person and you've been married now for so many years. Why is it 
with the most important thing that has happened to you and to me, which caused us who were blind to now see, which will eventually cause us to go to heaven as opposed to going to hell. Why is it that we cannot articulate that? It's a violation of what Peter is saying here. It's a violation of what Christ is saying as well. The Christian faith is defensible. We'll come back to this in our application, but move along here, Dan. Number four, to anyone who asks, the word ask refers to ordinary conversation, not, not um, official language. Therefore, it proves further that he's not talking about a court of law here. Why would a person ask about your faith? Well, maybe it's because you're actually living your faith. There's a supposition here, an assumption that needs to be recognized. Christians are to stand out, not in an obnoxious, offensive way, but in a loving way, demonstrating there's faith. There's something different or should be about a follower of Jesus. That's what Peter was saying in the beginning of the chapter that I didn't read you when he was addressing wives. He said, wives, if you have an unbelieving husband, you want to bring him to Christ, nag him to death. Take the Bible when he's sleeping and hit him over the head. Drag him to church. No, that's not what he said. He said, do it without a word. Because it was going to be the inner person that they were going to see. They were going to recognize that there's something different about this person. Same thing for us, only not without a word, because we need to be sharing, because he says you need to make a defense. So, But they ought to be able to see that there's a difference about the person. Consider this, however. If a Christian, or one who professes to be one, lives like the world, talks like the world, acts like the world, is not just in the world, but is a part of the world, will anyone ever ask them about their faith? No, there's no difference there, but there ought to be a difference. If you as a Christian are living like one, people will ask you about your faith. And what are they going to ask? And he says, this is pretty simple, the reason for the hope that is in you. Hope appears to be Peter's favorite word when it comes to faith. He uses it three times in the first chapter. Hope is what distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. Ephesians 2.12 describes the latter as having no hope and without God in the world. First Peter 1.3, the unbelieving world knows only dying hope, but believers have a living and undying hope. That will come to a complete, final, and glorious fulfillment. It is that hope which attracts. It is that hope which animates. It is that hope that convinces and that persuades. J.I. Packer wrote, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. Last fall, we had some uh, pretty bad storms down in Houston, hurricanes, and uh, uh, people were standing on roofs of their homes in and, and hope that a boat would go by and rescue them, and I believe in most cases it did. Uh, Puerto Rico suffered worse uh, with two storms, and the governor of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico um, before that first, second storm said, your only hope is to leave now. You stay, you die. Hope was leaving for higher ground. People in this world are dying without Jesus. They will spend a Christless eternity. They have no hope. And that includes your Nathaniel. 
your friend, your relative, your associate, your neighbor, your co-worker, that family member who doesn't know Christ has no hope, and they will spend eternity separated from God. God says the only hope is Jesus. Followers of Jesus have hope. We need to tell them about that hope. Kurt Cameron noted, if you had the cure for cancer, wouldn't you share it? You have the cure for death. Get out there and share it. When a person experiences salvation, he radiates confidence and hope, and people notice the difference, or they should. Question, do you have that hope? Are you sure if you died today, you would go to heaven? Are you positive? If not, you've got to talk to this man right here. You need to talk to us. We want to share with you so that you can have that hope. But then he tells us how to do this with gentleness and respect. I had a local TV program when I was pastoring for a number of years where I interviewed people. It was called The Bottom Line. And I had questions for them, and uh, they could... Uh, uh, they would answer the questions, and, and these were people from the community. They were senators. Arlen Specter was on a couple times. Uh, congressmen, those running for center, Senate of Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey was on, and and uh, and then religious leaders, some of our fold, some not of our fold. I had all sorts of questions for them, and they could say whatever they wanted to say. I wasn't going to stop them. But at the end of the program, I thanked them for coming with about five minutes left, and I shook their hand, and they walked off the stage. Uh, and then I gave the bottom line. So I, I said what I believed to be God's word. Well, I had one guy on uh, who was from Philadelphia, and he was the kind of in-your-face type of witnesser um, with a, an organization called Repent America. And he was the type of guy that would hold up signs over um, interstates, um, over overpasses, uh, like you're going to hell or you know something pretty drastic. He wasn't winning anybody, all right, except maybe some a few radicals of his own. I firmly believe that Peter's prescription for winning people to Christ is this way. Gentleness refers to meekness or humility, not in the sense of weakness, but in the sense of not being dominant or overbearing. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Our Lord was characterized by this virtue, so was Paul. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness of and the gentleness of Christ. We know what respect means. It means treating others as we wish to be treated. Someone wrote, nothing is as alienating and obnoxious as Christians witnessing with arrogance and condescension, with rudeness and intrusion. Have a sense of appropriateness, they said. Timothy Keller, he said, band evangelism says, I'm right, you're wrong, and I would love to tell you about it. Uh, that, does, that doesn't work either. That doesn't work. You may win an argument, but you never win the person to your side. It's a hollow win, one experienced by only you. Here's our verse. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I was at a conference just this past week, and um, I was... Um, being a vendor for the Nathaniel Project, I had a lot of people come by, talked to a lot of different pastors, and we're pretty excited about what's going to happen. But we were told that somebody from the White House was going to address the, the audience the last day. They couldn't tell who it was. Um, they didn't want to get that out. Well, it was Vice President Pence, and uh, it was kind of neat to be able to, to see him as he spoke and to listen to him. And he shared his testimony, and he shared two verses. And the first verse he shared was this one. And I thought, yes, way to go, Mike Pence. Talking to Christians, saying that you need to be ready. Well, we've made application as we've gone, but let's see if we can sum this up here. The application is simple. 
Uh, Each one of us who claim to be followers of Jesus need to be able to share our faith with those who do not know Christ. So let me ask you some questions. Number one, are you living a Christian life so that people notice the difference? Are you living that type of life? What in your life is of the world that is holding you back from others seeing that you are a follower of Jesus? What's holding you back? What's keeping them from seeing that you're a Christian? You know, after you deal with this this question and with the Lord, um, you may have to go to some people and apologize to them for not living the way you should live as a Christian. Secondly, do you have enough knowledge of what you believe so that you can tell them about the hope that is in you? We don't have to be an apologist. That's the other word that comes out of that word defense in the original, an apologist. And that's somebody who is a whole lot smarter than me, that is able to defend the faith. You don't have to be that way. Jesus chose only one highly educated religious person as an apostle, and that was the 13th apostle, the apostle Paul. All the rest of the guys, they were fishermen. They were tax collectors and, and, and just normal people of the day who were available and willing to be used by the Lord. They were filled by the Spirit of God, and God used them uh, as vessels for him to his glory. Steve, who I told you about, just a regular guy. Just a regular guy, and God uses him. We're talking about your eternal life heaven, your destiny, the hope that is within you. Therefore, you ought to be able to articulate to tell someone how you know you're going to heaven. The least you can do is say, once I was blind, but now I see. And then you better be able to tell them why you see and how you came to know that you see. This means you should study God's word uh, to present the gospel. You should get my book, which will help you with that as well. I've got some in the car if you're interested. Number three, are you ready? Always ready. We should wake up in the morning asking God for the opportunity to share Christ. My friend Steve, about whom I spoke earlier, does this. He wakes up asking God for opportunities, and then he looks for them. He wrote me, he said, we need to always be looking for that opportunity to share the gospel, as well as being aware of people who come within our circle of life who are in need. Be ready. Finally, will you love your Nathaniel, your friend, your relative, your coworker, your neighbor, your family member? Will you love them into the kingdom? We do this with love from our hearts, with gentleness and kindness, with sincerity. I started the day praying that if God wanted me to share my faith with the seatmate on the plane, I would be available. I was coming back from uh, preaching in New Mexico, and and uh, so we were flying through Texas. And the first flight was only 90 minutes, and and uh, and and an airline official came on there, and and I guess she was going to Dallas so that she would take another flight. She had these earbuds in, and I thought, okay, God, I said I was available. Um, but it doesn't look like she is. So I put my headphones on and I listened to praise and worship. The next flight is a three and a half hour flight and a businessman sat aside of me. He too had the earbuds in his, in his ears and he was watching something on his phone. I thought, God, come on. I said I was available and, and now this. And I got my headphones out and I was just about to put them on when he asked me a question. I thought, oh, here we go. And I like to use the, the formula Um, which I don't use as often as I should, but I learned it from, and I have it in my book, from an evangelist friend of mine, Ron Blue. And it's the word form. F, talk about the family. O, talk about their occupation. R, talk about their religion, get into spiritual things. And then Ron Blue would say the M, message. Give them the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I started. Well, we had some problems. 
there were two main issues, two main problems. First of all, he was a Roman Catholic, but he was an apologist. He was an evangelist. Not officially either of those two things, but that's what he does for his church. He admitted as much later, uh, later on, stating that he had texted his wife when he sat down, I'm going to win this big guy over to Roman Catholicism. <clears throat> he and I then butted heads for two and a half hours until we finally ran out of steam. He dissed every argument I threw at him. He said, that's irrelevant. Yet it was all stuff about their history, all stuff about their church. He just wanted to talk the present, not the corruption of the church or the idolatry of Mary. The other problem was he was partially drunk. Apparently he had spent some time in the airport lounge. Before getting onto the airport, there was not a drink that he turned away. He kept leaning towards me, almost putting his head on my shoulder. He was invading my space. Um, this was a challenge. And... Um, <clears throat> The last glass of wine that he took, uh, he actually passed back. Um, and, and maybe that was because I asked him a question. I, I said to him, is someone picking you up at the airport? This uh, offended him, uh, needless to say. But the second question, I think, created even a greater offense when I asked him, are you a happy drunk or a sad drunk? He didn't like that question at all. Um, I didn't win any points on this thing. It was not my finest moment. I felt pretty bad about the encounter, although I had somebody say to me recently, they said, well, you don't know that somebody else might have been sitting in another chair, and, and they heard you talking as well. And quite frankly, as loud as we were talking, I think they probably did. We're not going to win every battle. And, and it appears I scored no points on this one. Um, but perhaps, um, perhaps he'll remember some of it. I don't know. But here's what my friend Steve says. He wrote, how can we, who have known the love of God, keep it to ourselves, especially when we also know the terrible alternative? And that's what our Nathaniels, our friends, relatives, associates, co-workers, neighbors, family members, that's the alternative for them. And then in an email he said this, we should as Christians always be ready to give the reason for our faith in God and ready to present the gospel of Christ. That's the verse. Steve lives that verse. I aspire to live that verse. How about you? Father, I thank you for this church and what it has meant to, to me and my family over the years. And I thank you for the testimony this church has. I thank you for its pastor and what you're doing through him. And we're just praying that you'll do a tremendous thing through this church, especially with the people in the community here who don't know you. Individually, Father, however, most of us aren't doing the job that we should be doing. We're not sharing our faith like we should. That's so typical of all of us. And yet we need, a, we need to light a little fire under us every now and then. And I trust that the Apostle Peter was able to do that when he gave us this command. And so I would pray that you would speak to our hearts today. First of all, identifying who is that Nathaniel in our life that we need to share Christ with, uh, and then burdening us with doing that very thing. So speak to each one here today, Father. And Lord, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I would pray that you would speak to them as well. Draw them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.